At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. For the last several weeks, you know that we have been in a series uh, that is called Your World Peace. And again, this series has not talked about a peace that happens on the other side of an ocean between two opposing armies when a treaty is signed. We're talking about peace happening in your world, in your life. Specifically in this series, we have talked about peace that we can have with people, with others that we might find ourselves in conflict with. We've looked at peace even inside of our own mind and soul. We looked at that this last Sunday. Well, today we're going to conclude this short series by looking at how you and I can have peace with our possessions. Peace with our possessions. And we're going to see that from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. Now, when I talk about peace with possessions, I know some of you are probably thinking, I don't know that I've ever been at war with a possession, except maybe an electronic device I was trying to program, right? Maybe that's the exception. But I'm not talking about going to war with things that you own. I'm talking about our attitude towards possessions. And when it comes to our attitude towards possessions that we have and things that we want to have, we can find ourselves at war in those thoughts and in those feelings. And to illustrate that, I want to just ask a question that I want everybody in here to answer. Whether you are a student or whether you are a senior citizen, whether you are a child or whether you are a young adult, I want you to to answer this question today. And that is this, if I just had blank, then I would be happy. If I just had blank, then I would be happy. How are you answering that question today? Or even better, how have you most recently answered that question? Oftentimes we put a possession in that blank, don't we? If I just had a boat, then I would be happy. If I just had a new car, then I would be happy. If I just had a new house, then I would be happy. If I just had new countertops, then I would be happy. If I just had that new Xbox game, then I would be happy. If I just had this new toy, I would be happy. If I just had this new electronic device, an iPad, a phone, whatever it might be, then I would be happy. How have you most recently answered that question? I happen to think that that most of us have some connection to this illustration. We can think of the thing that we are wanting right now or that we have wanted in the past that we think would be the key to unlocking our happiness, our joy, our peace, or our contentment. And, And when we don't have it, there is a certain unrest that happens inside of our lives. Or we get it. But once we get it, what happens? You want those countertops and then you get those countertops. Then what? Is your soul and your spirit settled and resting for life in that? Or do you then want the refrigerator that goes beside it, right? You get the car that you wanted, 
you can't wait for it, you get it, and then it has problems or it's not quite what you had hoped or whatever it might be, right? When it comes to our attitude towards our possessions, we are at war with those attitudes. We want to find in those things happiness, peace, joy, contentment, but it never seems to deliver. And so this morning, I want us to look at what might be another option to our attitude towards possessions. And this other option was demonstrated by the Apostle Paul and by the church in Philippi. And inside of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20, we see the Apostle Paul and the Philippian church demonstrate for us what it looks like for us to have a different attitude towards our possessions, one that brings contentment and not war. And so we're going to look at that today from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. If you got a Bible, open up to Philippians 4. If you have a phone, you might tap your way over there, but we're going to spend our time this morning in these verses. I want to read them for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make a couple of observations today about how we might apply the truth of this passage to our lives. The Apostle Paul is writing, he's concluding the letter that he wrote to his friends in Philippi, and this is what he says. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in those few verses that I just read, we're going to see two things that talk about our attitude towards our possession that leads to a peace inside of our world. What's the first thing that we see? Well, the first thing that we see is really a question, and it's a question I want to ask to everyone in this room, regardless of your age, regardless of your station and time. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to take it to heart, and I want you to answer it. And that question is this, which tent are you living in? Pat Morin, does this ring a bell for you? I remember you saying this question in a group that I was a part of 20 years ago. Which tent are you living in? Now, when I ask that question, um, you may want to answer and say, what do you mean, which tent am I living in? I don't live in any tent. I live in a house. I, I have walls. I have an air conditioner all of those kinds of things. And if that's the case for for so many of us, then praise the Lord that he has provided in that way. But that's not the kind of tent that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about canvas versus stucco. When I talk about which tent are you living in, I'm suggesting that there are two tents 
where we might find ourselves dwelling. And I don't mean occasionally visiting. I mean dwelling in a regular way. One of those tents is the tent of discontent, and the other tent is the tent of content. Now, if you think that's a little bit of a bad uh, pun to some degree, imagine how challenging it was at the 8 o'clock service without a screen, all right? Uh, but, But here we go. Which tent are you living in? Are you living in the tent of discontent, or are you living in the tent of content? I don't mean which did you spend a little bit of time in this week? I mean, where has been your, your go-to? Where have you spent the majority of your time in the last week, in the last month, in the last quarter, in the last year? Have you spent your life discontent, longing for something else? You have many things that you have wanted to put in that blank, and yet you haven't had them, and so you've lived your life in a steady state of discontent. Or are you living your life in a state of content where you are experiencing a peace in your world as it relates to your attitude towards possessions? Where are you spending your time right now? Well, what's fascinating is we look at uh, the verses that we just read, we see the Apostle Paul indicate that he is living, he is dwelling in a state of content. Now, we see this in verses 11 and 12, where he says in these verses, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's saying, I'm living, I'm dwelling in a steady state of contentment. Now, before we go any further, let's just pause for a moment and reflect on what it means to be content. What does it mean to be content? Well, we, all of us may come up with a slightly different definition, but let me circle us together. And, and one way to understand that concept a little more of content would be to put the emphasis on a different syllable and to say instead of content, to think of content, right? To, to think of content in the sense that somebody who is content, then they believe that they have access to, in their immediate vicinity, everything that they need. Somebody who is content says, right around me, I have access to all that I need for peace, for joy, for rejoicing, and in this I am content. And so the Apostle Paul writes and says, I am dwelling in a state where I have in the contents of my life, I have everything that I need. Now, after he makes that statement, though, he he wants to let us know that he is not making a statement that he has access to everything he needs. He doesn't make that in, in in a situation where he has an abundance of a bunch of stuff. I mean, remember the context of the letter of the Philippians. Where does Paul write this from? He writes this from prison. Not only did he write it from prison, but he obviously wrote it at a time where he did not have access to a lot of material possessions. He didn't have any money in his bank account. An offering had come from the Philippians that enabled him to pay the bills, but he was in a time and in a situation of great need, not a time of great abundance. And so Paul writes from this setting And he says, I am content. I have access to everything that I need, even at a time when you might look at my life and say that I have nothing. Paul says, I'm content. Now, this perspective, this attitude that is able to say that I have access to everything that I need when I have 
a lot to eat or when I have nothing to eat. I have access to everything that I need when my bank account is full or when it's empty. This attitude that says I can be content, I have access to what I need regardless of my material possessions. Paul says this is a perspective that I was not born with, but it's a perspective that I have learned. Look at what it says in verse 11. He uses this word learn, and that, that, that word learn has the idea of experience. Paul had learned this perspective, this attitude, through real-world experiences. He had gone through imprisonments. He had gone through shipwrecks. He had gone through beatings. He had gone through times of being in financial need. And in those experiences, the Lord had taught him that no matter what happened on the outside, he had everything he needed on the inside. Not only does he talk about learning it through his experience, he also talks about learning it in verse 12. And the word that is translated here, learned, is a word that is translated in other places with the idea of initiation. In other words, Paul understood that he had become a part of a club. He had become a part of a group who had been initiated into this life of hardship and difficulty, but had been ushered into a place where he could experience contentment regardless of his access to stuff. Whether he had a lot or whether he had a little, it did not matter. He found a contentment in his life. Now, here's the question for us question for you and the question for me. Do you want that kind of contentment? Do you want a contentment that is not tied to how much stuff that you have? You want a contentment that's not dependent upon you filling in the blank with whatever you think you want or need? Well, friends, Paul's getting ready to tell us how we have access to that. And the access that that we have to this contentment, he says, is found in a secret in verse 12. Now, when we hear him say secret, I want to go ahead and go on record as saying this is, if this is a secret, it's the worst kept secret in the world. Because this secret is recorded in the greatest bestseller of all time. And this secret is probably on a t-shirt that you have in your house or a calendar that is on your shelf or is a a, a part of a regular saying that you might say to others. The, The secret that Paul gives for how we can have contentment even in a life where we don't have everything that we might want in terms of stuff, he says that secret is found in Jesus. It's the secret that he identifies in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. He says the secret to this kind of contentment is Jesus because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, when you you see this verse, so often we have taken this verse out of context and we want to use it to indicate that, that we can make every shot right? Steph Curry has it on the back of his sneakers, for crying out loud. It's the idea that that we we can make every shot, that we can hit every pitch, that we can close every business deal, that everything ultimately will work out the way we want it to work out because I can do all things. But what's fascinating, we look at Philippians 4.13 in context, 
Paul is not talking about how everything will work out in our favor because of Jesus. What he is saying is, he says, when we miss the shot and when we strike out and when the business deal doesn't close, we can still have contentment. Regardless of what happens in everything, in every circumstance, Paul says, I can have contentment because my contentment is not fueled by my performance. My contentment is not fueled by my access to stuff. My contentment is fueled by Jesus himself. And in Jesus, Paul says, we have access to a contentment that will not fade. That's the idea behind this. Now, when he talks about that, what what does he mean? Again, he doesn't mean that he will have access to every car that he wants to drive, every house that he wants to live in, that everything will work out perfectly. What he is saying is what he really needs, what he most needs, is, is the same thing that you need and that I need. And that is that we have a need of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We have a need for things like love and joy and peace and patience in kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that what you need? It's what I need too. And Paul says, I most need those things, and I have access to them all the time. They're, They're in the area where I am all the time, because once I trusted in Jesus, Jesus is with me, his spirit is inside of me, and his fruit is available to me to experience in my life each and every moment, regardless of my circumstance. Regardless of my access to stuff, I have his fruit available to me. Not only does Paul say he has his fruit available to him, but he also talks about the strength that he has available to him, I believe. Because he says it is in him that he is strengthened in all things. And I think this brings to mind what Jesus said in a parallel passage in John chapter 15 when he was preaching to his disciples. He talks to them there and he he says, That apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing, but if you abide in me, by implication, you can do all things. Paul knew that by remaining with Christ, by having Christ in his proximity, by being with him, he had access to the fruit of the Spirit. He had access to the strength to enable him to live the life that God was calling him to live. And because of that, he could be content no matter what. Not only do we see, though, These are the kinds of things that he needed that were available to him in Christ. But also, I want us to think for just a moment about what it would look like for us to rely on Jesus to provide us these things every day. What would it look like? Well, the first thing it would look like is that we would lean on him. We would have a spirit of dependence upon the Lord. We would go before him regularly in prayer. We would ask for his empowerment and his direction. It's this idea that Gerald Hawthorne, a commentator on Philippians, wrote and said, the secret of Paul's independence was his dependence upon another. This idea of independence is this idea that he had in, in, the, in the contents around him, he had everything he needed. What Hawthorne is noting is that Paul wasn't saying that in his own flesh, Paul had access to everything, but because he was in Christ around him, He had access to what he needed to live out his spiritual life. The secret of Paul's independence was his dependence upon another. His self-sufficiency in reality came from being in vital union with the one who is all-sufficient. 
Friends, what does it look like for us to have his strength flow through us? Well, it begins with us being dependent upon him, leaning on him. But then it continues with us being obedient to him, being obedient to him. Jesus again said in John chapter 15, as he continued, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, if I'm going to see the strength of God demonstrated in my life, I need to keep connected to Jesus who is able to produce this in me. And part of the expression of that connection is my obedience to his word. I don't just say that I trust him, I demonstrate it by how I live my life. Friends, there is no lasting peace in cheating on your taxes. There is no lasting peace in coveting what your neighbor has. There is no lasting peace to taking the toy that your brother or sister has so that you have access to it or changing the login password to the Xbox so you can get the next level in the game. Not that any of these things would apply to anyone in this room. And my son was in the 930 service. But you think about just the aspects. If we want to to keep dependent upon Christ, part of the demonstration of that is that we will be dependent upon him and demonstrating that through our obedience to him. We lean on him, we obey him, and then we choose contentment in him. I love Philippians chapter 4 because throughout the entire chapter, again and again and again, over and over, whether it's peace or whether it's joy or whether it's contentment, they're not presented as a product that happens if everything works out for us, but they're presented as something that we have a choice about. Are we going to choose contentment? Are we going to choose joy? Are we going to choose peace? It's an option that is available to us in Christ. Remembering and knowing who Jesus is and all that he has done for us gives us an opportunity to choose contentment even in this moment. Now, this was Paul's testimony, but Paul wanted to make sure that the Philippians knew that what was, he was experiencing was also available to them. And when we look at verses 19 and 20, Paul says to them, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What Paul was saying was, he says, The same God who has supplied my needs and who is providing his strength in my life is the same God who is able to do the same in your life. You know, all too often we take this verse and we want to make it into some kind of a promise that God will give us everything we ever wanted. In this life, now, that's not fully what it's saying. I think certainly material things are a part of this, but they're not even the emphasis of the section. I think what Paul was saying was, he was reminding the Philippians that the same peace and contentment that he had was available to them because it came from the riches of his Savior who had deep pockets and was able to give abundantly to them even as he was giving to Paul. And this kind of a peace and contentment that came from God, God would ultimately receive the glory for. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So friends, the question comes back to all of us. Which tent are we living in? Are we living right now? Are we dwelling? Are we returning to a consistent state of discontentment? If so, I would hazard a guess that it is tied primarily to your circumstances. 
and maybe focusing on what you do not have? Or are you living in the state of content where we realize that in Christ we have all that we need? Friends, that's the first point that we see inside of these verses. But there's a second point that I think it's important for us to see and to think about. And that is, as Paul continues in this section, he encourages them about investing in his work. And I think as we look at this today, we might be encouraged to also invest financially in the work of the Lord. And I think the logic would go something like this. If, if you and I feel like we need everything in order to be content, we will give nothing. We can't give anything. If we think we need everything in order for our lives and our world to make sense, for us to be content, for us to have peace, for us to have joy, for us to have happiness, if that's our worldview, we're living in discontent and we hang on to stuff. But when we come to this position of contentment, where we realize that in Jesus we find our contentment, a contentment that lasts, then suddenly we don't need everything. And God frees our hearts up to be generous to give to others. And we see this lived out in the example of the Philippians. I think Paul knew that the Philippians were also experiencing a contentment. And he encouraged them to continue to have that contentment work itself out in investing financially in his work. Now, where do we see that in the passage? Well, Philippians 4.10, the the verse that we kicked this section off with, it's interesting, Paul is talking about his connection with the Philippians, and he's reflecting on their participation with him financially in ministry. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's saying that there's been a new connection that has been made. Verse 18 will fill in that blank for us. It says that when Epaphroditus had come to visit Paul when he was in prison, Epaphroditus had brought a financial gift from the church in Philippi to deliver to Paul in that setting. And, And Paul was excited when that gift came. It was a blessing to him. You see, apparently there had been some kind of a, a gap in support when the, from the church in Philippi supporting Paul in his missionary endeavors. He says that somehow they, they, they were concerned for him, but they had no opportunity. It could be that they didn't know where he was. This is the day before cell phones, and he had no forwarding address. Paul had been shipwrecked just moments before. They, they, they couldn't find him. You know, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? They did not know where he was. And so when they found out where he was in Rome, they, they took up a collection and they sent it. But, but this gift that they extended to Paul was not the first of their gifts. Paul here describes it as a reviving of a concern. The idea of something had bloomed again. That, that word revived is another word for a, a bloom. I don't know if you have a, a plant at your house that you think you have killed, but then it, it comes back to life. We've got a rose bush at our house that I thought I have killed several times. And then occasionally there's a, a bloom that comes out of that rose bush. And it's like Lazarus coming back from the grave, right? It's a reminder of the beauty that is in that bush. And what Paul says, he says, this gift that has come, it reminds me of the life that we have in our relationship, the concern we have for one another in our fellowship in the gospel. 
But this was not the first gift. It's a revival of, of a relationship that had gone back many years. See, the, the, the Philippians had partnered with Paul financially for a very long time. Verse 14 reminds us of that. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. In, in other words, they were sharing or they were fellowshipping. They had given some finances to help with his need at a particular moment in time. But this financial gift that they had given, friends, was not the first time they had done it. It's something they had done consistently. There may have been a little bit of a gap because they couldn't find him, but they had given consistently to him throughout his time in ministry. Verse 15 reminds us of that. It says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, in other words, when I left the state where Philippi is, it says, No church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving except you only. They had contributed and partnered with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9 tell us that they had sent a gift to Paul when he was ministering in Corinth. Verse 16 tells us that they had sent a gift to partner with him while he was ministering in Thessalonica. And verse 18 reminds us that Epaphroditus had brought him this gift when he was in Rome. Consistently, over time, Paul had received gifts from the Philippians. In a sense, this letter is a thank you letter. It's a prayer letter. It's, it's a reminder of the connection that they have as he recounts their consistent financial gifts to his ministry. But not only was it consistent and financial, but friends, it also was strategic, these gifts that had been given. Again, think about the locations where Paul was serving when these gifts came, just the, the cities that I just mentioned. He received a gift from them when he was in Corinth. We rece- he received a gift from them when he was in Thessalonica. He received a gift from them when he was in Rome. I'm guessing that they helped provide for his needs when he was in Philippi, in their town. Rome, Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica. Those names ring a bell to anyone? Friends, that's the New Testament. Those are the letters that were written to churches. This little church in Philippi had partnered with Paul to take the gospel throughout the Roman world. What a strategic opportunity they had, they took advantage of, and by their consistent financial gifts had participated with him in those things. And so Paul writes this letter, and he writes it in part to encourage them that those gifts have mattered, to thank them for them. And he uses two kinds of of symbols to talk about these gifts. The first symbol that he uses is really the symbol of a business term. And this is indicated in this idea of credit. He says, not that I seek the gift. In other words, I'm not telling you this in order to manipulate you into giving to me again. But he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul says, I... I don't want something else from you. I want something for you. Because as they had given to the ministry that was happening all over the Roman world, Paul wanted to remind them that there was something that was being credited to their account. Now, again, this is not talking about how God was going to give them the new boat or the car or the house or the countertops, but it's the idea that God would reward them eternally for their gifts in this life. Jesus talked about this. 
Luke chapter 12 and verse 33 talked about the attitude of his followers towards finances. He says, there are many things in life that when we take our money, we're, we're going to put it someplace. And many things that we put our money in, it's like a, a purse or a wallet with a hole in it. It just goes through it and the other side, we don't know what happened to it. But Jesus said, if you take money and you give it away in my name, guess what will happen? It will go into a purse or a pocketbook or a wallet where it will never be lost. It's the idea that God will remember our gifts and will reward us in eternity for the way that we've invested material possessions now. Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and then again in verses 19 through 21, he, he talked about how when we give, our Father sees what we do. Our Heavenly Father sees what we do in secret, and He will reward us. It's credited to our account, as Paul mentioned. That not only that, but Jesus said when we give, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. See, Paul writes to the Philippians, and he wants to remind them, I'm so thankful for your gift, Paul says, but I want you to remember that as you have given, it's not just that you have, have given away, but you have also brought to yourself a blessing that comes from God and will be rewarded in eternity. Their gifts had mattered. God had seen them. Not only do we see that, but also not just in a business term, in this idea of interest or, or return, but also in a religious term, Jesus says, or, or Paul says, that these gifts that were given are like a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, though these gifts were given on a horizontal plane, ultimately they have a vertical expression. They were given from one church to a missionary but ultimately, God is the one who received the glory and the honor for the gift that was given. Paul writes to encourage them and to let them know that as they have lived in this contentment and it has freed them up to be generous with others, they've invested in his work and that investment has mattered. He thanks them for it. And so the question for you and I today by way of application, is this. Are we investing in his work? If, if we have found a contentment in our lives in Christ, are we investing financially in what he is doing, following the pattern that we see with the Philippians? Are we giving of our funds, and not just occasionally, but are we giving of our funds consistently? And, and here's what I would say in this moment, before I go any further, I just want to just say, as Paul did to the Philippians, I want to say to the people of Wildwood, I want to say thank you for just your financial gifts as a church through this season. Not only has it been a blessing here at, in our congregation and with the ministry that is happening here, it's been a blessing in our community as we've been able to bless other churches and ministries and other partners. It's been a blessing around the world and things that God has done. You have been amazing in, in your demonstration of these things, and I pray that you would experience the, the blessing knowing that God has seen those gifts that have been done in private. But what's fascinating to me is that Paul, though he writes to the Philippian church, and he thanks them collectively, he reminds them that there is an individual reward. There is something for each individual who gives. And so I just would, would flip that back to us here and just say, though as a church, we've been generous and so many are, are contributing. If you have, are not yet a part of that, I would encourage you to do so, not because I, we want your money, but because 
This passage, among others, reminds us that there is something for you even in this. As the Lord is honored as we worship Him by giving offerings through the church to His work. Not only are we giving financially, but are we giving consistently? Sometimes when we think of giving, you think, well, there was that generous gift that I gave when I had that bonus back in 2011. That's awesome. That was great. But, But don't just anchor your generosity to a season in the past right now in your life today. What does this generosity look like? If, if you're content today, one of the expressions is that you would be giving consistently, whether that's weekly or monthly or quarterly or whatever related to the way the Lord has provided for you. You might consider what an expression of His generosity might look like in your life in that way. And then also just a reminder that as we give, let's, let's give strategically. Again, the Philippians pooled their money, and together it went to impact Corinth and Thessalonica and Rome and the Roman world in general. And as we pool our funds together as a church and we we give them and we mobilize them for ministry, it impacts the next generation in this town. It impacts adults in this town through ministry we're able to do in our community. It impacts outreaches like Faith More Clinic that Bruce mentioned earlier. It impacts the world as we think about partners that we have training pastors in Spain and in different places around the world, kids on the streets in Nicaragua, that we're able to have an impact in their lives as a church because of the way that the funds have been pooled and contributed together. Friends, when we think about being content in Jesus, one of the ways that works itself out is then investing in his work in the lives of others. How will we apply this message today? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for just the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word today and to study it. We pray that you would just help us to be a people who are empowered by your spirit to live a life of contentment, to pursue uh, you and not things. And Father, that as we do that, that you might give us a spirit of generosity um, as we relate in this world. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.